Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co., the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Todd LaRue, Managing Director of RCL Co. Real Estate Consulting. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCL Co. has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking to Colby Cox, founder and managing partner of Convergence Investments. Convergence Investments is a Jackson, Wyoming-based private equity real estate investment firm that operates in a specialized corner of real estate, master plan community development. They use their investment model to passionately shape land into innovative, highly desirable planned communities across the country, creating wealth for investors and communities that offer exceptional living experiences to residents. Colby, thanks so much for joining us as one of the best minds in real estate. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Terrific. Uh, well, let's talk just quickly, give a brief description of your professional work history. I never really, I guess, spent a lot of time out in the world. I've owned my own company since I was 22 years old. So Convergence Investments originally started as a company called Integrity Associates back in 2002. I graduated undergrad in 2001 and went to work for Centex Homes in Raleigh, North Carolina. And Centex doesn't exist anymore, but anybody who was around then knows that they were one of the largest builders in the country. I worked for them for about six months. The dot-com fallout had kind of happened, but there was a real estate boom happening at the same time. And so the market was going crazy and people were diving into real estate. And me and a couple other people I know, another guy who worked for Enron at the time, who was also in the midst of a massive meltdown, decided to get together and start our own company. Generally, you know, the business plan was to get into construction management and consulting in order to raise dollars to then be able to put option contracts on land and get into the development business. And I would say from a 10,000 foot perspective, that's generally how it works. So since then, I've been inside my own company, self-employed ever since. I want to get to kind of how you grew that in a minute, but kind of what grabbed your interest? What, what about real estate grabbed your interest? Uh, even prior to joining Centex and starting your own company? Well, I'd done a couple of internships with some pretty interesting guys when I was in my undergrad program. Two guys that were developing, you know, kind of like condo projects and things like that in the Eastern Shore, mostly in Delaware, but kind of up and down the Eastern Shore of the U.S. And they ended up going to Harvard and they're, you know, pretty pretty smart dudes and and young and and full of energy and I interned for them two summers in a row and and just kind of fell in love with this the pace of things and the excitement around deals and and really the magnitude of the projects this firm I was interning with you know it was a pretty small firm and we were doing these huge projects you know 
10, 15, 20 million dollar deals, the excitement of all of that really grabbed my attention. Going into my junior year of college, I had no idea really what I wanted to do. And after my first summer with them and that experience, I immediately changed my major to real estate finance, construction management, and, and decided I wanted to go into real estate. And so, yeah, let's kind of start on how the company evolved. I mean, you started the company at age 22. If I recall, your story didn't have exactly a giant check to get you going. So kind of how did that go the first couple of years? And then what was the big pivotal moment? Uh, no, did not have a big check, did not have seed capital, did not have an investor. In fact, you know, it's quite stupid what we did. So it was me and two other guys. And I think we had $3,000 each. And that was kind of the starting point, pretty much the extent of our savings collectively. And so in retrospect, you could poke holes in the plan all day long. Now I kind of can laugh at it and say, you know, when I showed my business plan to a couple of people and they kind of told me I was crazy, now I understand why. But, you know, we were pretty determined. We didn't have a lot to lose. And I think that was kind of key. What was at stake was my reputation. And, you know, and I had something to prove to myself. I had something to prove to the world. And, and so that was a big deal to me. And so at that time, when it was really kind of those first six months of trying to get going, I mean, I would have rather died than failed. And so, you know, I was doing, shaking every tree, kicking every bush, doing everything I could to try to drum up business. And all I needed was that first contract. You know, I just needed somebody to say, we will let you act as a general contractor for our project. When I was bidding a lot of deals, you know, trying to undercut anybody, you know, I was willing to essentially work, you know, for zero profit just to try to get some revenue generation in the company, keep the lights on. Well, long story short, um, about four or five months into it, one of the partners I had, the guy who came over from Enron, bailed on me and went and worked for the two guys I had interned with, which ended up becoming one of my competitors. So then I went to my stepfather for an emergency loan for 15 grand, which he he gave me and essentially said, okay, you know, this is 9% interest. I can't remember what it was. It was somewhere in that range. And don't ever ask me for money again. <laughs> and I said, okay, so this is going to have to work. So fast forward, bottom line is I ended up getting my first GC job. Like I actually got two of them. We underbid a project. It was a $3 million construction job. We underbid by $12,000. So we, we ended up getting that deal. It was kind of a miracle that allowed us to, you know, continue to kind of, I guess, market ourselves to other people. And over the course of the next three years, we basically put a couple option contracts on various pieces of land, which was part of the original business plan and started through the approval process. One was a 360 home project called Windstone in Delaware. Well, basically in 2004, I was able to find a buyer for that project after I got the preliminary approval in place for 360 homes. And I had it under contract for like 6.3 million and I sold it for 21 million. And I got a big chunk of that money. And that's what kind of launched me and my company into being able to do more deals. And I, I reinvested, you know, 95% of that capital into more deals. And then we had the great recession and, you know, I mean, it just kept getting crazier and crazier from there, but, you know, ultimately I guess 19 years in retrospect, it, it all worked out. 
Although, you know, plenty of times I thought I was going belly up. But that transaction, that was their true launch point. The time at which you said, okay, now we can really get going. And so since that time, and you, you mentioned the Great Recession and so forth, you know, you've, you've had enough years under your belt to understand how to both prioritize you know, your time and which projects to pursue. You know, kind of how do you process that? So I ended up getting, um, you know, I'm just going to be honest here. I don't, you know, typically divulge things like this, but, you know, why not do it to the general public? Right. So I, I got about a $5 million check from that transaction that I was just describing. And it really sent me on a kind of a weird cycle mentally of kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, because it was such a pressure cooker. I had been under for several years trying to generate that kind of ROI. And then I, I finally got it. And I had a bunch of other deals still in the works. And, you know, I was trying to read the tea leaves in terms of where the market was going. You know, this is kind of 2005, 2006, 2007. I ended up going to business school because I, I was a little confused and I needed to figure some things out. Like, what did I want to do with my company, my life? And I would generally say that the money screwed me up pretty good for a couple of years. In today's world, it's not a ton of money. Back then, you know, I literally, the, the most valuable asset I held before I sold this project was, you know, that I had a little equity in my car. So to go from that to all of a sudden having some significant liquidity and then trying to figure out as a, you know, niche company, where should we invest our dollars? What is it we want to, you know, what is it you know, convergence should be as a company. Where's our place in the world? Where's, you know, what is it I want to do with my life? You know, I was only 26. So I kind of had to go through that. It was kind of like the waiting place. And I finally, you know, I got into, you know, got to business school and I came out of that experience and rededicated myself to the mission, the original mission of the company, which was, you know, that I had a real passion for creating communities. And you know, that there was something about creating a, you know, a, a great place to live that could stand the test of time. And that was kind of the key, you know, that 30, 40, 50 years from now would still be, you know, somebody could put a measuring stick on it and say, this was a well-built community. That mission appealed to me big time. And I kind of rededicated myself to it. And that's when we started launching funds. And, you know, I built some of the assets in my company in terms of people and, and hired a CEO. And But there was, you know, there was a time period there where there was a lot of searching. And I'm glad I figured it out. But I think, I think honestly, I think every company goes through that at some, in some form or fashion, bit of an identity crisis. But that was mine. Yeah, and so you're you know you're looking for deals where convergence can add you know significant value, apply your brand to it, and your you know your special sauce to the deal to create value, right? And and you know thinking about that, and I've talked to you about that quite a bit over the years as we've worked together. And this topic too, you know, over the last ten years, you know, what 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 changes have you seen in the market that has affected your business? You know, we've talked about just residential markets in general since say two thousand nine. You know, kind of give us your thoughts on that. Oh man, there's been uh, there's been a lot of changes, and it seems like the speed at which things are changing is accelerating. And yeah, like you said, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. I mean, you know, I think we've had some pretty significant demographic shifts, which have affected a lot of the what I'll call more predictable um, 
behaviors of people in terms of their moves from, say, single urban living to starting families to expanding into single family home, you know, housing developments and, you know, having 2.5 kids. And so there's been some significant shifts there. I think we're seeing, you know, a bit of a return to normalcy in a lot of ways where, you know, we're kind of seeing like this late stage millennial shift to suburbia, which is, I think you and I talked about how we we thought this was going to happen uh, maybe two years ago when we um, have our investment conference, but, and it, it, you know, or that it was already starting to happen and that we predicted it would happen in a much bigger way. And I continue to think it will. Um, and, you know, of course, COVID has now had an impact on that. Now, you know, with this shift have happened in the, you know, kind of the order of magnitude that it is without COVID. I mean, I, I think it, it's hard to say. My guess is probably not, uh, certainly not as quickly, but, you know, it may be more of the a trigger point that unleashed something that was already going to happen. I think we've seen some major, major shifts in the world of finance in the, let's say, kind of 2002 to 2007 era. You know, there was commercial, you know, non-recourse financing pretty readily available for development projects and through a combination of government interference and increased, you know, kind of bank balance sheet scrutiny and things like that. There's a general still to this day, a version, I think, you know, in a lot of commercial banks toward um, exposing themselves to the level of scrutiny that they have to endure if they engage in non-recourse land, quote unquote, speculation. So that's created a huge private market, higher interest rate private market. I think there's been some shifting around in kind of the, you know, the builder market as well. Of course, right now we're, you know, we're seeing a pretty rapid inflationary environment. It's kind of happening before our eyes, uh, which is certainly going to have an impact. You know, we've got material pricing increased, you know, lumber pricing. We're seeing from builders that they want to come back to us and tell us, you know, that we need to give them some kind of break on lot prices in order to make up for, you know, their increased costs. You know, it's a bit of a battle. We, we tell them they should charge more for their home. You know, is the customer ultimately going to pay for it? Will that slow down absorption? I mean, we're kind of in that tug of war a little bit right now, a lot of our communities. So it's, it's an interesting time. Yeah, it's kind of on top, you know, like we've talked about in the past, you've expressed just, you know, annoyance with, you know, the, the lack of capital, which has kept supply of residential fairly depressed over the last 10 years, which has combined with now the labor and material price increases um, is exacerbating you know, the price escalations that we're seeing. So that limited supply, given the, the slow flow of capital to uh, land development projects coming out of the Great Recession, sounds like you're experiencing that full tilt right now. Yeah, we're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing it, you know, in our projects in the East Coast. We're seeing it in Middle America. You know, we're even seeing it here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It's probably actually exponentially worse here. I, I would say construction prices are construction pricing in Jackson Hole, Wyoming is up just insane. If you want to build something new here in Jackson, you're looking at a thousand bucks a foot right now. Incredible. If if you can get a permit to build anything, right? Yeah, if you can if you can make it happen. <laughs> Well, let's pivot real quick, kind of go into your personal life a little bit. You mentioned you went back to business school, got your MBA, go back to undergrad. You were what at University of Denver, 
played lacrosse there and so forth. Uh, walk us through your, your your personal life and kind of what you're into on the personal side. I think you've got some interesting things you're up to. Yep. So I played played lacrosse at University of Denver, captain of my team, and had a really good time doing that. Still pretty connected with a lot of the guys I played with. Uh, I was just down in Denver actually for the round one of the NCAA playoffs. Unfortunately, Denver lost, but you know, there's always next year. So I went to my, I guess my educational life, I went to, ended up going to Kellogg School of Management um, at Northwestern. I had a great experience there, met, met some amazing people, professors, what have you. It was just a good kind of opportunity to be inside of a think tank and really explore some ideas that I have and be a little bit flexible on, you know, not caring about the outcome. And so that was a, a, a really good time for me. I'm married. I've got three kids. I've got a three-year-old, a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. People always ask me, you know, why are you, why the hell are you in Jackson Hole, Wyoming? And depending on who the audience is, I give a variety of answers. The truth is the reason I'm in Jackson Hole, Wyoming is because, you know, of lifestyle. I have a lot of uh, outdoor passions in life. One of them is paragliding. Learned how to paraglide here. It's you know amazing sport that's taken me all over the world. It's something I do quite often. That was one of our original connections, actually, through a common friend in the paragliding world out there, which was a small world moment. I think if I recall correctly, you had a fairly interesting launch the last time you were out here. Is that... Yeah, my virgin launch landed me on my face, which was uh, <laughs> definitely entertaining, both for me and for the guide. <laughs> uh, that's good. It's good. Got the full experience. Full experience. And you also got a brewery there in Jackson Hole, right? Or in Jackson, in the town, on the town square. I've been a home brewer for a long time. Actually, you know, I'm from Delaware. One of the first jobs I had when I was younger, was working at Dogfish Head Brewery. Uh, I got into home brewing kind of after undergrad and got pretty serious into it. And then in 2012, I started a brewery with another guy named Gavin Fine, who owns a bunch of restaurants here in Jackson. And in 2017, we kind of got serious about it and opened up a production facility. And then we moved our restaurant onto the town square. And now we distribute in five states. What's it called again, Colby? Called Roadhouse Brewing Company. Right. Right on the square. Yep. Right on the square. Yeah. And it's called, people always ask me, why, why Roadhouse? Why not Jackson Hole Brewing Company? The answer is because my partner, Gavin, owned a restaurant called the Q Roadhouse Restaurant out on the West Bank. And when I decided I wanted to start a brewery, I had two conditions. One was that we had to have food. And the other was that I wasn't going to run a restaurant. And in order to satisfy those two conditions, I tapped Gavin Fine on the shoulder and said, can I put a brewery in your restaurant out on the West Bank called The Roadhouse? And from then on, it became the Roadhouse Brewing Company. We've been doing that since 2012, and it's been great. It's kind of grown like a weed and both pretty passionate about it. Very different business from real estate, private equity, and development. But I've actually learned a tremendous amount in the brewing world that has helped me in development and vice versa. Well, I was going to say, you know, you think about... Some might think about these things as diversions or distractions, but I mean, you describe yourself as a fitness junkie. I know you're an avid 
snowboarder, the paragliding has taken you around the world. You know, how do you balance you know these different risks you take kind of recreationally as well as these side businesses, you know, with the risks you take with the projects you know you choose to invest in? You know, does your kind of personal active lifestyle help balance out the professional side? You know, does, does one sort of feed the other? I think that would be a good question to ask some people in my office. I think <laughs> what they would tell you is, although some of those activities, like let's take paragliding, for example, seems like, you know, that would not be for the risk adverse. The risk in that sport is is very calculable. And knowing what your skill set is, what the conditions are, when you should fly, whether that, you know, kind of you fit within that window of, you know, skills and, and conditions and making it, you know, a good judgment, launching safely, landing safely. It's kind of a good metaphor for real estate transactions and deals. And, you know, we're a small, we're a niche player. When I say small, I mean, you know, we're doing $100 million master plan community deals, two or three at a time. That's kind of the magnitude of the work that we that we do. And so it's really important that those deals are successful because one bad deal for us is could sink the entire company. And so it's really important that we use kind of this very regulated checklist of, you know, whether it's in our due diligence process, whether it's, you know, optioning contracts. I mean, I can tell you like, for example, right now, I mean, the market is exploding in terms of capital. Capital is just being thrown at, you know, single family housing development. Every instinct in me is telling me as I'm seeing these asset prices increase, we're becoming less and less of a buyer in this market right now. Uh, Unfortunately, it's really hard to say no to people when they're throwing money at you. But I mean, we just did it. We just literally had some investors that wanted to get into a deal in Dallas uh, that we walked away from because we just felt the deal was too rich. And, and discipline and having a very clear understanding of kind of like where you fit in a process, what is it that you're really good at? Does this, you know, do the stars align on this deal to allow you to kind of apply what you're really good at to this project in a way that creates a tremendous amount of value? And if the answer is yes, then keep going. But if you're struggling and scratching your head to figure out either why, where is it that we add value in this process or why would we purchase something in Texas, you know, in, in San Antonio, that's three times the cost of what we bought something there for three years ago. I mean, why would we do that? We, so, I mean, I, I think it's, I think I'm pretty methodical, but of course, you know, I mean, I, you can tell from my story and how I got started and some of the things I do. I mean, I believe in leaning into risk. You know, I believe that people should take risk in life and learning how to take that risk in a way that's not, you know, let's call it, it's not evil. Knievel risk is a leadership consultant I work with likes to say, you know, it's it's an area outside of your comfort zone, but it's not so far that it pushes you into the red, you know, finding that balance and stretching yourself because otherwise, you, you know, if you're not leaning into risk, I mean, this is going back to just kind of my belief about life and being a human, human condition. If you're not pushing yourself beyond your comfort zone, then you're growing smaller over time. And eventually you're 70 years old and it's a big deal for you to get out of your chair and get the paper out on the front step. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Got to get outside that comfort zone, and, and which is inspiring and to those with whom you work. 
and, you know, really teaches them to do the same and perhaps act more entrepreneurially or, or take on new things rather than be complacent. So I think that's good, good behavior in general. So what talk about kind of vulnerabilities, you know, what, what do you feel like your greatest vulnerability is and, and how do you compensate for that? So I think, you know, I think as a company, Convergence's greatest vulnerability is kind of what I mentioned before, that we're only, you know, developing two or three kind of core projects at a time. And therefore, we don't have a portfolio of, let's say, you know, 50 assets where, you know, one loss or two losses can kind of be diluted by the you know success of the rest. You know, we pride ourselves on the success of every project because we we need them to work. So, that, you know, I think our greatest vulnerability is probably just our balance sheet. We're a very successful firm, but we're not a Fortune 500 company, nor do I ever want to be, frankly. And that's another discussion. Personally, I think, you know, my greatest vulnerability is probably just my frenetic energy. You know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, you know, give you some token answer that somebody gives when they come in for an interview and says that their you know, biggest weakness is that they work too hard. My, my biggest weakness is that I like to create a lot of energy and movement in things. And if those things aren't moving at the pace that I want them to, I start creating things around them to get some movement at any price. So if I were to be highly critical of myself, I would say that I own a brewery right now because we went through the great recession and things weren't moving fast enough in real estate. And I needed another company to focus on. And was that a smart decision? Is that a good thing? I, you know, I don't know. I'm very happy and proud and glad that I own Roadhouse Brewing Company. So I'm very passionate about beer and all of those things. But was that the best thing for convergence? Probably not for a couple of years there when I was getting sucked into kind of startup mode on another company. Now I will say this, I have, you know, I think I have more awareness around that. And so I'm trying to steer as much of that energy as I can into convergence when things aren't necessarily, you know, growing as quickly as I would like them to, or moving as fast as I would like them to. And I start feeling that itch to kind of create something somewhere else. I've been trying to develop a practice of redirecting that energy back into convergence. So you talk to the people around here, they would say, I've been much more present uh, over the last several years because I'm not distracted with a lot of other stuff, but I, I got, you know, it's something I have to pay attention to. Yeah, sure. You know, in that, in that vein, whether it's being distracted or, you know, perhaps jumping into something you're not as familiar, some mistakes that have occurred in the past, you know, and, and the decisions you've had to make to correct those mistakes. We, you know, I've talked about the importance of the partners you choose. Maybe speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I've got some experience there. I've had some pretty terrible partners over the last 20 years or 18 years. I've had some great partners too. I mean, my partner in the brewery is tell him all the time, he's the best partner I've ever had. But I've had some, I've had some not so good ones as well. And, you know, it's usually, I can just say, you know, my advice to people is a couple of things. One, the most important thing in deciding on a partner is, is really having a very strong understanding of what your values are and making sure that the other person that you're talking about being 
in a partnership with has alignment with those values, that they agree that those values may not necessarily always have to be the same values, but they at least have some of the same values, a lot of the same values, and agree that your values are important to you and therefore they're important to them. I think when there's not value alignment, things go wrong almost immediately. And I, so the mistakes that I've made over time is I've selected partners based on, um, you know, very practical reasons like the deal itself, the deal makes sense. The ownership structure makes sense. The management structure makes sense. The fee structure makes sense. All of this stuff makes sense. And so we enter into this transaction and two years later, I find out that something that is of significant value to me, like creating a sense of place in a community is not of value to my partner. And all of a sudden we have misalignment and we have a problem and, or, you know, I like to operate autonomously and, you know, my partner wants to call me up every three days and get a download on everything that's happening. And that's not how I function. And after two years of that, you know, it's just like, this isn't working anymore. Or, or you can find out your partner's not honest. You know, they don't tell the truth. You know, there's all kinds of value misalignments that happen. And, you know, but ultimately, you know, these things, you know, I can look back at every partnership I've had that didn't go well. And I can tell you how I could have seen that from the beginning and avoided it, but didn't because I was more interested in getting a deal done. So yeah, I'm much less, uh, much more hesitant to enter into partnerships these days. I don't do many of them. And when I do, I'm extremely, extremely selective about who I do them with. And eyes wide open, obviously, and focus on all facets of it, not just the deal itself, but with whom you're going to be executing that deal, which obviously can go a lot of different directions. So your, your partner selection process now, I imagine, is a little, little different or perhaps just not as frequent as you just said. You know, I will say this. I mean, somebody sitting out there listening to this podcast who's, you know, 23 years old and trying to start a company, I mean, you got to do what you got to do. There were partnerships that I created in the beginning that, you know, I knew that we didn't have necessarily didn't have values alignment, but they were, you know, they were a stepping stone. They put food on the table and I did, and I was starving. So I think, you know, now I'm sitting in a fairly luxurious place. Um, you know, I'm 42 years old and I get to kind of pick my partners. You know, I don't, I shouldn't say kind of, I get to pick my partners. <laughs> so, right. You've been through the ringer on it. So <laughs> you've earned that. I've, I've earned it. Um, and I respect it. And it's one of the most important things in my life when it comes to business is, is just, you know, doing business with the people that I want to do business with first and foremost. And then everything else after that is, is important, but not um, necessary. Right. Well, and so thinking about, you know, for those listening and what kind of resources you might recommend to get insight into becoming a better leader, I uh, had a, an interesting answer to this. Yeah. So I, you know, I, again, like, I just think, I think people sometimes, you know, I've read a thousand business books and there've been some that are more worthwhile than others. Um, I think there's a lot of crap out there. I think the most important thing is business is learning how to be a good human being. That's how, I mean, the most important thing to becoming a great leader 
is, is learning how to become a good human being, you know, self-actualization, like how do you really discover and expose yourself to yourself and discover the weaknesses and the, the things in your own life? You know, like, for example, what we discussed earlier, like what are the, some of your greatest vulnerabilities? I mean, being able to answer some of those questions honestly and being in a, you know, in a, in a mindset of self-exploration, I think all almost automatically puts you in a place of humility and understanding, which allows you when you're kind of approaching the leadership conversation to be much more somebody that, you know, people are much more willing to listen to and respect. The answer to the question, I said, read, you know, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I've read that book two times now. You know, I've worked with a leadership consultant, coach, and friend of mine up in Canada for a number of years now. And there's a book he recommended to me and I've read it a couple of times. I don't really need to get into it. I mean, there's a lot going on in that book that I think will kind of, depending on where you're, it's actually kind of the point of the book, I believe. I mean, like depending on how you, where you're coming into it as a reader, it will take you wherever, you know, you're going to go. But the, the bottom line is that I think people want to, people want like a quick answer. They want like a, you know, what are the 21, you know, habits of an effective leader or, you know, what are the key things that I need to, you know, how many mantras do I need to recite every morning in the mirror before I, you know, walk into the office and, you know, all of those things. Yeah. I mean, they're all very contrived, you know, it's like being, being a leader is kind of a state of being, you know, it's, it's not a state of doing. Well, it seems like it's a it's a book about kind of engagement, right? And it's how to engage and be engaging. It's, it's been a long, long time since I read it. I think it was written the year I was born. You know, just to give you a little snippet into the book, I mean, the idea is that, you know, you, you kind of, you, you, we work our problems into the things around us. Like, isn't it funny sometimes that we, you know, we have this battle, this fight with like an inanimate object and we're, you know, and all of a sudden we've given it this personality and we say, why, why does this computer like always screwing with me? How much of you is making that computer? You know what I mean? I think it's a, an interesting perspective to understand how as a leader, what is it that I'm doing when I walk into the room that is creating the very situation that I may not like or be upset with? You know, personal accountability and, and understanding your role, I guess, would be an easier way of saying it. But I guess it can go as deep as you want it to. Sure. Yeah. Well, and like you said, everyone can draw a different meaning out of it. But I thought that was an interesting selection versus, you know, the litany of business and leadership books that are out there. Let's pivot, you know, quickly over to uh, housing development. And, you know, something I wanted you to talk about, something you said to me about kind of the the current antiquated nature of housing development. You know, the buzz around town in a lot of places is like the new community, the new community. There's a lot of marketing, I think, and flash in the pan, you know, about creating the, you know, the future of community. I just don't think that there's re any real kind of systematic or holistic change that's happened in a long time in terms of community development. I think fundamentally at the core of, you know, the basic, you know, projects kind of infrastructure 
things are generally the same, you know, the components of streets and sidewalks and sewer and water and stormwater management and design and layout and proximity. And then, you know, we kind of went through a phase of TND and, um, you know, it's kind of comes and goes in terms of trying to use kind of the archetype of a traditional neighborhood and, and apply that to modern development. So I think all of these things are, you know, are interesting, but I think in a lot of ways, you know, we're kind of ripe as an industry for what I would call, you know, rather than kind of incremental change, something that would be on the order of magnitude of say, like the electric car, or the, you know, smartphone or something. I mean, I think, you know, housing development is ripe for some huge systematic change. And I think that that biggest area where that could and should occur is in the realm of kind of 360 degree sustainability. And what I mean by that is, you know, the idea that a community itself could not only be self-sustaining in terms of its infrastructure, let's call it food, water, waste management, the kind of necessities in terms of stormwater, sewer water, all the infrastructure, electricity, you know, telecommunications, things like that. I think we're on the verge of being able to kind of close the loop on some of those things. But I also think that communities could act, the future of community could act as a transformative mechanism for, you know, existing antiquated uh, infrastructure in, let's say, you know, the surrounding area. So, for example, you know, we have a project in, you know, in Delaware that is on the edge of a town that's been around for over 400 years. Well, there's some some very antiquated infrastructure that services that town, sewer, water, stormwater management, what have you. It sits right on the Broadkill River. And it's, you know, for many, many hundreds of years, stormwater has and wastewater has dumped into the Broadkill River at various levels of treatment. Future communities such as ours could act as almost like biofiltration areas to pre-treat a lot of the town's inf existing infrastructure prior to it being disposed on the Broadkill River or whatever. And that could be, that's one example. You know, it could also be in kind of farm to table type food and sustainability of agriculture. I think sustainability is one thing. I think using, you know, communities to solve problems for existing towns and cities, like new communities to solve old problems, I think is kind of the next step. And I think it follows an economic model that can make a lot of sense because I think through the creation of PIDs and other financing mechanisms, I think you can work with these cities and these municipalities to help them kind of, you know, joint venture, solve some of these problems and come up with some interesting financing uh, mechanisms that are kind of public-private partnerships that allow a lot of this to happen. So that's my take on where it should and could go. Um, Convergence is trying to have, you know, play a small part in that, be a little innovative in our own way, but we'll see. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's it's sort of taking away the self-serving development model, you know, infrastructure serving only internally, but rather looking a little bit more externally uh, towards the long haul. I like it. Well, like I said, We'll see. I think, um, but I think there's, you know, that's an opportunity. And I, and I think there's, a, you know, for people who 
you know, have kind of the intelligence and are forward thinking and want to jump into the space, I think, you know, there's a lot of room to move here. So. No, it's good. And I feel like there's a lot of discussion around it has been, you know, through ULI and other professional organizations and, and still yet not a lot going into practice. You know, there's some innovation and certain types of housing going on, but in, in the, in the realm of community development, not as much. Well, as we wrap up here, Colby, one last thing I was going to ask you, I think you're raising a fund right now, or at least capital. What, what can you tell us about that? Um, so we are about to launch our third fund. So we're raising $150 million. We have tasked a investment banker to, to head up the initiative. I think we go to market in the next 12 days or so. So we haven't officially launched yet, but we, you know, we're pretty close and we'll be investing in a couple of communities. You know, most of our projects are 15 year projects or fun, you know, our funds are typically seven to nine years. So they, we recap out of those into other funds and anyway, yeah, this will be our third fund. We're pretty excited about it. Yeah. And you know, it'd be really cool if we could find a project that we could do something um, unique and innovative and bridge uh, us into the future of community, which is something we've always, you know, talk, you know, we talk about constantly wanting to be a part of. And so I, I, I look forward, Todd, to continuing to be able to have these conversations with you. And maybe one of these days we'll stumble on genius. Right, exactly. And, and stumble upon the, the concept that the capital, the money is happy investing in, and, and the returns that they will generate. So, which is always the hurdle, right? Um, well, look forward to hearing about your progress and that fundraise and appreciate you having, having you as a client and friend. Thanks for joining us, Colby, on RCLCO's latest episode of Conversations with the Best Mind in Real Estate. Look forward to the next conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCL Co. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show. 